Hey, welcome back from Spring Break Church. Glad that you're here today. Hey, this is the conclusion of our series called Forgotten Christianity. And today we're going to talk about something that's actually difficult to deal with. Uh, and we're going to deal with it. We're going to, we're going to talk about it. It's called false teachings or false prophets. The reason why it's important for us to deal with it will become clear as the message goes on today, but I just want to give you a heads up today that this is a little bit difficult to deal with. I recognize that there may be some here, this is not a great way to start a message, some here who may be quite offended by what I say, I'm okay with that. As long as we're, as long as we're talking about scripture, and as long as we're staying true to what scripture says, I'm okay with that uh, uh, if, if for whatever reason that is offensive. So I want to share with you today uh, the uh, again the document called the Didache. And if you're new today and you haven't been with us, or if you missed one of the weeks, we're studying an, a first century document called the Didache. And uh, by the way, if you're wondering what the name of it looks like, it looks like this: the Didache, the Lord's teaching. That's what the document says: the Lord's teaching by the twelve apostles to the nations. And this document is, gives us a glimpse into twenty. I'm sorry, first century Christianity, and it allows us to see how the apostles or disciples instructed the church as it grew beyond Jerusalem and beyond Judea in throughout the Roman Empire, instructed them on how they should do church. And so, if you missed any of the weeks, you can watch them online at our website. But today, we're going to continue the conversation as we look at the Didache. Now, I've said this every week. I feel like I need to say it again today. The Didache is not inspired. It is, a, it is a document in history that we believe was written by the disciples or compiled by the disciples, but it is not authoritative like Scripture. Do not elevate the Didache on par with the canon of Scripture or the 66 books of the Bible. If you do so, you would be in error, which is interesting because we're going to talk about errors today. Before we dive into the Didache, though, and to talk about false teaching or false prophecy. I want to make sure and give you a few words of preface, because when you talk about this, there's a couple of things that might go through your mind as this unfolds that I want to deal with up front so your mind can be set free to look and study uh, without some of the baggage that might come with this conversation. So I want to give you a few words of preface. First of all, I want us all to appreciate and understand that even when we're talking about false teaching and false prophecy, that no one is morally perfect in practice. That is to say that when we talk about false teachers and false prophets and how they live, we'll do that in a little bit, we're not suggesting that if someone sins at all that they would be a false teacher or false prophet. I am sinful. I, I still sin. I don't want to. If you think that your pastor is perfect and holy in terms of practice, I am not. I don't want to sin, and I hate it about myself. But so long as we are here on this earth in this fallen sense, we still have a sin nature, and it still affects our life. My pursuit is Christ. I don't always achieve that end. So no one is morally perfect in practice. We are positionally right with God. We are positionally declared righteous. We are practically still a work in progress. I think we can all appreciate that about ourselves. Secondly, I would want you to understand before we talk about this that no one is dogmatically perfect. That is to say, there's no one who, at this point in 21st century Christianity, who can just simply say, I've cornered the market on every single biblical scriptural truth and I've got it nailed to a T. The truth is, is that there are, there are essential Christian doctrines 
that make up the core of Christianity. And there are peripheral Christian doctrines that we can discuss and debate over, but they shouldn't divide us as a church or as the church, generally speaking, as a whole. Um, I'm certain that one day when I stand before God and give an account of my life, he's going to look at me and say, Matt, you were off on this thing, on this this piece, this belief, this doctrine. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be a very, very small part of our conversation. Somewhere over here in the very margins of, of my conversation with him. But, but it's likely I'm off somewhere along the way. No, we don't always get it right. And there's room inside the church for discussions about some things that are called peripheral issues or non-essential Christian doctrine. When we talk about false prophets or false teachings, we're talking about core Christianity. Those core doctrines that make Christianity Christianity in and of itself. But no one's dogmatically perfect, at least not since Jesus was here. Third, everyone misspeaks from time to time. Someone is not a false prophet or false teacher if they misspeak. That's just the nature of talking for a living or teaching for a living. I was laughing about my own journey over the past 13 years as your pastor. And I was laughing about the number of times that I have misspoken from the stage. And it's numerous I watched last week's message at about 11 o'clock last night before I went to bed. And I watched the message from the 915 service, that's the one we recorded, and I could not believe the number of times I misspoke in that message. It was dozens of times. For instance, I could not communicate clearly to the church whether or not we were talking about chapter 6 of the Didache or chapter 7 of the Didache. I said the word message instead of method last week as well. I had tons of different issues last week as, as, as I was just trying to communicate from the stage. I'm not a false prophet because of that. I just misspoke in that moment. <laughs> I've had some real, real significant ones, though, along the way as well. Did you know in the past 13 years that I've told you that, that Jesus hung on the cross at a different time than he actually hung on the cross? Did, I, did you know that? He actually died at a certain time, and I actually said he died a little bit earlier than that to you guys. I'm so sorry about that. I told you that Stephen was the replacement disciple. It was actually Matthias. Sorry. My bad. <laughs> I told you along the way that Joseph, after his whole Egypt experience, when he reunites with his brothers, I said to you that Joseph said, I am in the place of God, and Joseph did not say that. He said, am I in the place of God? Totally different meaning when you look at it that way. I communicated that to you. You're welcome. (laughs) I said that one of the precious jewels mentioned in the book of Revelation was oinks, and it's onyx. (laughs) I'm so sorry. And we could go on and on. The list is many of the number of times that I have misspoken from the stage. And it's not going to stop. I won't always get it right from the stage. When you speak for a living, sometimes you don't speak correctly. It's important to distinguish between uh, misspeaking and, and doctrinal truth that are held by someone that aren't core Christianity. All right. So those are the words of preface. We're not perfect. We're not, we're not perfect morally. We're not perfect dogmatically. And sometimes we just misspeak along the way. All right. So with that preface... Now let's begin to talk about the whole idea of what the disciples wanted the church to know as it spread throughout the Roman Empire on the issue of false teaching and false prophecy. All right, so I want to grab a sheet of paper this morning. I usually have had the Didache on the screen in terms of chapter and verse. This is so long that I did not want to come back to the screen over and over again. I just want to read it to you. For those of you who struggle with staying connected and staying tuned, just tune in with me for the next couple of minutes. This is a little bit lengthy, but you need to hear it so that we can have a discussion. There'll be plenty on the screen in just a minute. So this is chapter 11. Let's make sure I'm clear on that. Chapter 11 of the Didache... And this is talking about false teaching and false prophets. 
And this is what the disciples wanted the church to know. If anyone comes and instructs you on the foregoing lines, if anyone comes to you, they said, and they teach what we have just taught you, then make him welcome. But should the instructor himself then turn around and introduce teaching of a different or subversive nature, pay no attention to him. If it aims or he aims at promoting righteousness and knowledge of the Lord, though, welcome him as you would the Lord. If he teaches sound doctrine, welcome him. If he does not, do not listen to what he says. As regards apostles and prophets, these, these, these individuals who would travel around the churches and they would do the circuit, if you will. They would go from church to church to encourage the churches and to teach in the churches. According to the gospel direction, this is how you're to act. Every apostle who comes to you should be welcomed as to the Lord. But he is not to stay more than a day or two days if it is really necessary. And this cracks me up. If he stays for three days, he's a false prophet. It's just cut to the chase. The dude's there longer than three days. He ain't legit, all right? An apostle at his departure should accept nothing but as much provisions as will last him to his next night's lodging. If he asks for money, he's a false prophet. While a prophet is uttering words in the spirit, you are on no account to subject him to any test or verifications. Pause for a moment. Paul does instruct us to test everything and hold on to that which is true and right. What this is saying is when the guy is speaking, don't call him out while he's speaking. Sin uh, shall be, every sin shall be forgiven, but this sin shall not be forgiven. Nevertheless, not all who speak in the Spirit are prophets, unless they also exhibit the manners and conduct of the Lord. That is to say, if they teach something, they ought to be, there ought to be evidence of it in their life as well. It is by their behavior that you can tell the imposter from the true. Thus, if a prophet should happen to call out for something to eat while he is in the spirit, he will not actually eat of it. That's hysterical to me. He's preaching. Give me something to eat. I don't want to eat it. Just bring it out here. Right here. Put it right here. Thank you. All right, good. Just leave it there. I'm not going to eat it. If he eats it, he's a fraud. I'm really hungry, but I'm not going to touch that food right there. Also, even supposing a prophet is sound enough in his teaching, yet if his deeds do not correspond with his words, he's an imposter. Or again, a prophet, thoroughly accredited and genuine, living the mystery of the church in the world, may yet fail to teach others to copy his example. In that case, you are not to judge the man yourselves. His judgment lies with God. The prophets of old used to do the things of a similar kind. Now, this was very liberating to me because what the disciples just told the church is if the guy is legit and he's preaching and teaching sound doctrine and his life matches that, but others around him don't match that, don't judge him for that. Let God judge him for that. And I'm like, thank God because I have kids. <laughs> the whole PK, preacher kid thing actually applies in this scenario. Like if they grow up and they are out of control, don't blame me. Right? That's what they're saying about this. I'm thankful for that. I thought it was hilarious is, is the disciples recognize that that's how, that's how it's always been. I mean, look at the prophets in the Bible, right? Their kids never worked it out, right? It's hilarious to see that. It's the way it's always been in the church. If any prophet speaking in the spirit says, give me money or anything else, do not listen to him. On the other hand, if he bids you to give it to someone else who's in need, nobody should criticize him. All right. 
That's the end of chapter 11. Now, just, just for a moment, chapter 12 and 13 are way quicker. Everyone who comes in the name of the Lord is to be welcomed or made welcome. Though later on you must test him and find out about him, you will be able to distinguish the truth from the false. If a newcomer is only passing through, give him all the help you can. Though he's not to stay more than a couple of days with you or three if it's unavoidable. If anyone wants to settle down among you and is a skilled worker, let him find employment and earn his bread. If he knows no trade, use your discretion to make sure that he does not live in idleness simply on the strength of being a Christian. Unless he agrees to this, he's only trying to exploit Christ. You must be on your guard against men of that sort. That's powerful. And then chapter 13, just briefly. A genuine prophet, however, who wishes to make his home with you, has a right to a livelihood. Similarly, a genuine teacher is as much entitled to his keep as a manual laborer. In other words... If someone comes to you and they want to settle with you and they want to lead you prophetically or lead you in teaching, they are worthy of being paid for that. It's just it's their trade. It's their, it's their contribution to a community or a, a, a gathering, and they should be rightly paid for their service, just like anyone else in the, in, in, in the business world. And I'd say amen to that. <laughs> you are therefore to take the first products of your wine press, your threshing floor, your oxen, and your sheep, and give them as first fruits to the prophets. For nowadays, it is they who are your high priests. Now be careful, church. This is slang. This is verbiage that the church would understand generations ago. We all understand that Jesus is our high priest. We only have one high priest. We don't need other priests. This idea is just simply to say they are your leaders. They are the one leading you. They are the ones leading you. If there is no prophet among you, give them to the poor. All that stuff that you collected. And... When you bake a batch of loaves, take the first of them and give it away as the commandment directs. Similarly, when you broach a jar of wine or oil, take the first portion to give it to the prophets. So too, with your money and your clothing and all your possessions, take a tithe of them in whatever way you think best and make a gift of it as the commandment bids you. All right. It's pretty good stuff. It's interesting to look back and see how the disciples instructed the church how to conduct itself. Now, let's talk about what this looks like in 21st century Christianity. I would say to you that one of the challenges of 21st century Christianity is that we live in a world, in an in a, in a, in a environment where calling out evil is considered judgmental and it is considered inappropriate in the, in the, in the world in which we live. A calling out people for being wrong or off is not widely accepted in our 21st century culture in our world. And I know we're, we're using this phrase a bunch, and it eventually it'll get old, but this is the problem with participation trophies. This is not just about effort, it's about correct. It's not just about you feeling like you were trying hard, it's about what you're actually doing and what you're actually saying in terms of the church world for us. And so I know it's difficult to do this, and I know we try to be really inclusive, and, and, and you know, if you're giving an effort, then we can all just kind of do this together, but that's not biblical Christianity. There is a gospel message that has been handed down from, from the apostles, from Jesus, from the apostles to us, and we are called to safeguard that message. 
We are called to make sure that we are testing everything and holding on to that which is true. And there's a very important reason why that's the case, and I'll give it to you before we're done today. But I want you to notice what the first century church or the early church um, held in terms of value as it comes to dogma or doctrine. So if you're writing things down as you study, if you look at the Didache and all throughout Scripture, by the way, one of the things you see is that the early church had a high view of doctrinal purity and recognized the real dangers of false teachers and false prophets. The early church had a high view of holding on to that which is right. So much so that Paul and Peter in Scripture, two of the pillars of the Christian faith early on, they have a great dispute as well. Paul is so concerned about doctrinal purity that he's willing, he's willing to have a conversation with Peter. Peter believes he's bought into the idea that circumcision is necessary for salvation. Paul says, absolutely not. And so they have a conversation about this. This becomes so, so significant, they actually form a council in Jerusalem to meet together to discuss what is doctrinally right. They had a high view of doctrinal purity. And I think that's important in 21st century Christianity, that we ought to continue to have a high view of dogma, of doctrine. Um, we have a couple of core values around here. One of those is we know what we believe and... That's exactly right, why we believe it. The reason we know what we believe and why we believe is because we have a high view of making sure we guard well what is true about Jesus. We also have this idea that says we teach, we, we, this core value that says we teach a timeless message in a culturally relevant way. Notice it is a timeless message. It passes on from generation to generation and we don't need to change it because it was right when Jesus gave it to us. We teach it in a way that impacts culture, but the message should be consistent from generation to generation. The disciples certainly had a high view of this because they heard from Jesus these very words, and they wanted to make sure to pass them on correctly as well. Right. Now, this is, this is not just found in the Didache. It's found all throughout Scripture as well. I'm going to give you a list, and this is not an exhaustive list, but this is a list of chapters in scripture that speak about the dangers of false teaching and false prophecy. And you can see it's in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Lamentations, uh, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, and all through the New Testament as well. I know you're not going to have time to write all this down, so I'm going to do you a favor. I did it for the, first, uh, the early service as well. So I'm going to take a picture of this and post it on Facebook for you so that you can have it. Uh, by the way, while I'm doing this, will you check in on Facebook as well so you don't have to take a picture? You can just grab mine. All right, so hold on just a second. Right, there we go. I got it. It's going on Facebook. I'll just knock. I'll just uh, post this as the eleven. Here you go, eleven fifteen service. I'm going to put here "ya go" because that's good English for uh, for us today. Here you go, eleven o'clock service. Okay, it's coming. Right, hold on. Wait for it. Autocorrect. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right, perfect. All right, it's there. You can find it on my Facebook page if you're not my friend yet. Then become my friend. We're the church. We're family. All right. So all these passages of Scripture, all these chapters deal with false teachings and false prophecies. I would encourage you to read them. They are very, very potent in terms of the dangers of false prophecy. All right. We'll talk about what the dangers really are in just a minute. But we see this high view of doctrinal purity. Also what we see in the early church, if you're writing things down, you can write this down. The early church was willing to call out false teachers and prophets. And this is interesting. It's not just that they had a high view of, moral, of doctrinal purity and this, they understood the dangers of false teachings and false prophecies, but they also were, they were willing to call it out. 
call people specifically out in terms of this. Paul, if you read his letters to the churches, he's calling out people by name. Can you imagine being called out by name from Paul? Watch out for that guy. Watch out for that couple. Watch out for this this individual. He calls them out. Why? Because he recognizes that it's necessary because it's so dangerous to allow that kind of teaching to creep in. It's dangerous to have them among the body of Christ preaching and teaching things contrary to Scripture. And so he calls them out. And I would say to you that the 21st century church really struggles with this. And the reason why we struggle with this is because we don't want to offend people. And I get it. I want to get along with everyone. But it's important that the church continues to pass on the message appropriately. And so calling out false doctrines and false teachings is critically important in the 21st century church. And I'm going to do that for you for just a minute if you'll allow me to do that. It really doesn't matter. I'm going to do it anyway. But I want to give this to you this morning. I think that there's some real dangers today that we're facing in 21st century Christianity. There's a danger of universalism that's being preached and taught in churches and throughout the Christian community that's very dangerous. Universalism says everyone goes to heaven because Jesus died for everyone. That is not biblical. If someone is teaching a picture of universalism that says everyone goes to heaven, it is absolutely not true. Jesus says there is a way that leads to life, and it's narrow, and there's a way that leads to death, and it's wide. And there's only a few that find the way to lead that lead to life. It's very clear in Scripture. Universalism is absolutely not biblical in terms of core Christianity. There's another one today that we see that's being taught, and it's not nearly as widespread, but there's this idea of a lack of understanding of the Trinity, uh, of the, this doctrine of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Godhead. We just sang one of the creeds of the first century church. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Godhead three in one. If someone teaches and preaches a, a gospel contrary to the Trinity, it is not sound biblical teaching. There's another movement today going on. It's called the grace movement. The grace movement is is a little more subtle, but it's very popular inside of Christianity today, and I believe it's unbiblical as it can be. The grace doctrine teaches that you gain a superior knowledge or understanding, that you you lose your awareness of sin, and that is absolutely not the case. Um, The clear teaching of Scripture, and Jesus taught this himself, that if you do sin, that you should go reconcile with your brother. It's not that you don't sin or that you're not aware of sin, but rather here's how to deal with sin. And so this grace doctrine is creeping in the church. It's a 21st century form, I believe, of 1st century Gnosticism, and it needs to be dealt with in the church today. I do not believe it's biblical. I could go on and on, but this is the picture of what's taking place in the 21st century church. I think it's important we call it out as well. All right, now, what, how do we know? The disciples in the Didache, as well as throughout Scripture, give us some indications of how we can identify if things are, if someone is a false teacher, false prophet, or if something is in error. And this is, this is basically the way that they say it. First of all, they say you can know if their teaching was contrary to the teaching of the apostles had uh, already been teaching. Beware of the words from the stage I've discovered something new. There is nothing new under the sun. Because the gospel has been given from Jesus, it might have been new with Jesus, but he's God and he can create new. God has given us the revealed word through Jesus, and that is what we are preaching and teaching 2,000 years after that revelation. Beware of someone from the stage saying, God gave me something new, a new revelation. Now, I do want to say this. It's very possible for God, through, through a leader, a speaker, a, a, a 
pastor or preacher or leader to, to be given a word of understanding about someone's life and they can speak wisdom and knowledge into someone's life, but that always has to be consistent with what Scripture has already declared as true. If someone tells you something contrary to Scripture, they are wrong, Scripture is not. So if it's contrary to what has been handed down for generations, then it is false teaching and false prophecy. Also, this is what the, the disciples want us to know. If their life, these individuals who are teaching, if their life did not match their teaching, then they would be considered false teachings. Now this, my friend, scares me to death. You know why? Because I look at my own life and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's me. It scares me because I recognize the standard is so high, but it also inspires me. And here's why it's inspiring to me. Because if it is true that Jesus rose from the dead, and if it is true that Christ lives in me through the Spirit, it ought to produce life change in me. Like, there ought to be evidence of that in my life, and there ought to be evidence in the life of those who proclaim this truth from any stage or any format or any setting. This ought to be consistent that what I teach from the stage, I'm seeking to live out in my life. Go back to point one of the preface, by the way. I'm not perfect, and I don't always get it right. But even in my imperfection, am I pursuing reconciliation and forgiveness and repentance the way Scripture calls me to? Watch their life. Is it consistent? Jesus made this very clear. You will know the false teacher, the false prophet, by their fruits, how they conduct their life. If there is a categorical difference between what they teach and how they live, it is not true biblical teaching. Third, the apostles say if they make money the central theme of their message, it is false teaching. The airways today are full of individuals who spend the entire broadcast telling you why you need to give them your money. If the central theme of a pastor or preacher or leader's message is money consistently and they are seeking just simply to persuade you to give them your money, it is unbiblical as it can be. Is money a part of the Christian experience? Yes. We already talked about being generous. But if it is all that is preached and taught, it is unbiblical. Now, I want to be careful here because some of you may have come from churches, if you had a church background where the church felt like they were always asking the, uh, the people for money. There's a difference between a church being in a financial situation where they need to talk about money more often than they, than they would in any other season. There's a difference for the church, for the pastor or leader asking the church to be generous above and beyond a weekly gift to sacrifice for a greater cause like a new building or a new ministry opportunity or something like that. That's not what we're talking about. We're saying is the central message constantly money. If it is, stay away from that. So these are the three indications. If it's contrary to what's been handed down, if there is inconsistency in their teaching in life, and if they always talk about money as the central theme, these are the things you should stay away from and stay clear of in terms of someone who's teaching and leading. Right, now, why do you need to know that? Why does the church need to focus on this in the 21st century? It's a good question. I think we should, we, we should ask, why was this so important to the apostles? I want to give you one verse then I want to illustrate it, and then I want to close. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, this is why Paul, writing about false prophecies, by the way, this is what he says. The reason this is so important is because a little yeast works through the whole dough. The picture here is that, is that bread or dough, unleavened, does not rise. But 
when, when yeast is added, there, the, 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 it works through the entire batch, the entire dough, and it causes the entire batch of dough to do something it would not normally do without the insertion of something very little, a little amount of yeast. For a little bit of yeast works through the entire batch of dough and causes it to act in a way that it wouldn't normally act without that little bit of insertion. See that picture right now. Think about that for a moment and let me illustrate something for you. I love to play golf. That's not new. You guys know that. I love to play golf. I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't play nearly as much last year and so I'm making up for that. I'm going to play twice as much this year. I'm really excited about that. So because I've made this commitment to get out and play more golf, one of the things I felt like I needed to do was to get a new driver. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, the reason why is because my driver is a Ping G5, and that's like 10-year-old technology. And who can play golf with 10-year-old technology? You know what I'm saying? I mean, how could you actually go out there and compete with 10-year-old technology? And so I've earned the right after 10 years to have a golf club that's new. And so, But being the good, godly, steward, Christian man that I am, I didn't need the latest, greatest technology like the 2017 model. I'm okay with the 2015 model, all right? I just want you to know, I can upgrade, but it doesn't have to be ridiculous. The 2017 model costs $500. I'm not spending $500 on a driver. The 2015 model's quite a bit cheaper than that. And so I went to Dick's Sporting Goods. And I told my wife, she was with me, she went shopping at like 13 other stores, and I went to Dick's, the one store I wanted to be at. And I went, and I, I told the, golf, the guys at the golf desk, I said, hey, I need, I'm in the market for a new driver, and the guy that was helping me said, great, let's talk through that, and so we talked through a couple different things, and finally we landed on about two or three different drivers, and I landed on the, the Ping G30, which is a big upgrade from the G5, or the TaylorMade R15, again, the 15 being the 15-year model, and so we began to talk about these two drivers, and I said, hey, can I hit these drivers, and he said, absolutely, you can hit the drivers, that sounds great, and so we got both of these drivers ready and prepared for me to hit. Now, what you also need to know about me is that all winter long, I have been working on my golf, golf swing in the mirror. And I was pretty certain I had it down. So I don't know, I don't know if there's any guys that do this, but in my house, we have several mirrors. And so I would, I would watch myself get set up, and then, and then I would just take, take my swing, make sure a good plane, and then, is that pretty good? Thank you. And so I worked hard all winter long in the mirror, making sure I was ready to go do this. And so I went to Dick's Sporting Goods, and I began to, uh, to show them my skills. <laughs> so I got the Ping G30, and I began to hit it, and I lined up. Really cool technology at Dick's. They have this whole technology where you can hit a ball off a tee, and it'll show you a simulated, a simulated image of that on the screen. So you can see how far you hit it and how straight you hit it and all that kind of stuff. So I got the Ping G30 and I got myself ready and, and did my waggles and wiggles. And then I, and then I hit, the, hit the ball. And I hit that ball with the, with the Ping G30. And I don't know if you guys know what a duck hook is. But that ball turned left. Like this. And I was like, oh, it's been a while. Make sure that guy understood that that's not me. It's just a bad swing, right? So I lined up again, and that ping G30, and whoosh, whoosh, duck hook. Over and over again, I'm like, I don't like that driver. Give me that other driver. That's that, it's got to be that driver. It can't be me. It's the driver. So I switched out drivers with him. I got the, I got the TaylorMade R15, and I got that thing down. And I started, to, I started getting my stance ready and wiggling, waggling, and I swung that thing again, and all of a sudden, whoosh, left turn again. So I realized 
My swing wasn't as finely tuned as I thought it was. So I made a couple of adjustments right there on the spot, and then I began to slice the ball. If you don't know what that was, that's the opposite direction. Hit the ball. Hit the ball. Way off target. I swung 25, 30 times. I hit the ball straight twice. Don't you know when I hit it? Yeah, thank you. When I hit it straight, I was like, This guy has seen a hundred of these situations before. He's not buying any of it. He can tell. I don't know what I'm doing there hitting the golf ball. Interesting about this. Here's why I tell you that story. You take the driver club head, the face of that driver, and you hit that ball. And if if the driver head is just one degree off, if it's hit, Instead of going straight where it's supposed to go, that ball begins to travel. It's only one degree off when it starts, but as it continues to travel, the further away from this point it gets, the further off target it ends up. And I was living proof of what a club head off just a little bit does to a ball over the long course of trajectory. Now, one of the things I loved about the TaylorMade R15 is that on the head itself, there are like three different adjustable options. You can, you can adjust for the, the, the loft of the club. You can adjust for a draw or a fade underneath. So you can dial it in exactly so that when you hit that ball, the club head is exactly square so that the ball will travel where it's supposed to travel. Brilliant technology. This is what the apostles understood. You let a little bit of false teaching creep into the church. And it doesn't seem like much at the time, but over the course of time, it begins to rob the church of truth, and it takes the church on a whole different trajectory. That is how cults are started, my friend. They take the truth of Scripture, pervert it and twist it a bit, and it ends up creating a whole different version of Christianity that's not Christianity at all. A little yeast works through the entire batch And corrupts it. Now, if you don't think this is a problem, go back in your minds to October 31st of 1517 when Martin Luther posted on the door of a church the 95 Theses. The 95 Theses were these 95 statements that said about the Catholic Church, this is where you're off base and off course. This is wrong. This is not right. This is not biblical truth. And out of that moment for the next 140 years, with the help of Zwingli and Calvin, the Reformation took place. And God, through his spirit, empowered these individuals to point out and call out what was wrong. And the church corrected its course since then. And the church is on a way better course because of that. God help us not to have to go through another course correction because we weren't willing to defend the truth and to call out biblical errors heresy and errors when they are present. And by the way, it's not just my job. We are the protectors of the gospel. You know what you believe and why you believe it. It is not just the job of the pastor. Here's some really good news. I'm going to leave you with great hope. 
Here's what I love about the whole idea of Christianity. That Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And that is to say, he's going to preserve his church from generation to generation to generation. Even if it requires a major correctional shift like the Reformation. He is going to do that. God, through his spirit, is preserving his word from generation to generation. And I am confident that he is sovereign. If he can create the world, he can preserve his word. Even through fallible, uh, imperfect humanity like us. And I'm thankful for that. All right, now, let me close with this statement. Forgotten Christianity so far has been about this, and this is the end of it. But think about this. If the church would reclaim some of the area it might have lost along the way and be generous and hold people accountable and to make disciples not just nominal Christians so that we're not growing a church large without making disciples along the way and if we protect the doctrine that's been given to us by the apostles and hand that off from generation to generation, how powerful the church is in any given century or generation in which it exists, right? We're making disciples and defending the truth of scripture and we are living this out in the context of generosity and accountability. I love that picture of the church and I want Saul's church to be a part of that. Amen, church? I want us to be that kind of church. Now, I want us to pray today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Hey, this is Pastor Matt Blair. Thank you so much for taking time to check out our podcast today at solacechurch.com. You know, we realize that it's possible, as you listen to this message today, that God may have spoken to your heart about something. So if you made any kind of spiritual decision, we would love to know about that. You can email us at info at solacechurch.com and let us know what happened in your life today. Once again, thank you so much for taking time to check out this podcast.